Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This season of Jury Duty explores the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, who was charged with the reckless homicide of Joseph Rosenbaum, the intentional homicide of Anthony Huber, and the attempted intentional homicide of Gage Grosskreutz. As Rittenhouse was the undisputed shooter of all three men, his legal team argued that the shootings were in self-defense. At the end of each week, I'm joined by a guest to help us distill and further examine what we heard in the trial. This week, my guest is Kenosha-based trial lawyer Michael Cicchini. Cicchini has been routinely recognized by his peers as one of Wisconsin's best criminal defense attorneys, and in 2020, he received the William M. Coffey Defender Award from the Wisconsin Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers for his significant contributions to professionalism in the criminal practice. Michael, who has tried dozens of cases in the Kenosha courts, including many before Judge Schrader, will offer us his unique insight into the participants and the events of the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, with a special focus on the events that we covered this past week. My conversation with Michael Cicchini is coming up right after the break. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. And now here's my conversation with Kenosha, Wisconsin criminal defense attorney, Michael Cicchini. Michael Cicchini, thank you so much for joining us today. No problem. Michael, how long have you practiced as a criminal defense attorney in Kenosha, Wisconsin? About 20 years now. And what is the population of Kenosha? I'm looking at that. The city is nearly 100,000 and the county is about 170,000. That includes the city. So if you're talking about jurors, jurors are drawn from the entire county, as are defendants from the entire county. But I think the jurors are drawn pretty well evenly, whereas I think most defendants, most criminal cases are probably from the city than the county. So can you tell me roughly what the racial demographics of Kenosha are, both the city and the county? Do you know? Yeah, I have a rough idea here. Um, I did this article recently. I'll tell you about it, and it's on the website. You can find it later, but it included some racial demographics of uh, the area, and I drew this from the U.S. Census Bureau. It looks like the city is about nearly 12% African-American alone. That means no other race. And, you know, they've got these different categories and so forth. And white alone looks like about 66%, and then there's Hispanic and other and things like that. Now, if you go to the county overall, including the city, then the white population goes up to 75%. African-American population drops to about 7.5%. So 75% versus 7% then. So that drops you know, when you look at the overall county. But I think the city population, African-American percentage is, is pushing 12%. In your experience, what are the demographics of people who are charged with crime and particularly with violent crime? I don't know. In my experience, I don't track those things. I would say in this study I did, I looked at disorderly conduct crimes whenever the crime of disorderly conduct was charged. And I found that whites were the majority of cases. African-Americans were 
disproportionately relative to the population. I'm not making any claims about what that means, you know, right here, but they were higher than their population. Hispanics were lower than their population. Um, the Hispanic one, that could be impacted a little bit by how the demographics are counted between the U.S. Census Bureau and the, the prosecutor's office. But it's usually Caucasian is pretty clear and African-American is pretty clear. So there was a higher percentage of African-Americans than their population being charged with disorderly conduct. And then Caucasians, it was a bit lower. So that's just disorderly conduct. So I, I don't have or keep statistics on overall of the cases I represent. I, I would say I wouldn't be surprised if it mirrors that. Probably I have a majority of white clients our black clients, a higher percentage of my cases than their population, probably. This is just, you know, gut feel at this point. So I don't have firm numbers on that like I do on the on the disorderly conduct sample that I looked at. Do you work primarily as a fee-based attorney or do you do some work? Is there a bar panel in Wisconsin? Is there pro bono work or indigent services work that you do? Yeah, the for a typical defense attorney, certainly me, I'm privately employed. So my work comes from three sources, uh, private retainers, clients who come to me and want to pay a you know, a fee. And I represent them a public defender appointments. That means the public defender's office can't handle all their cases. They farm out. At one point, it was about half of their cases that come in. They farm out to private attorneys. We take those. That pays a reduced fee. And then there's a third source. People who fall in between, they don't qualify for a public defender, but they can't afford their own attorney. The county will often appoint a lawyer for them. And then that's paid by the county rather than the state. Public defender appointments, the state will pay the attorney. And with this middle category, the county will. And I recently removed myself from that list just because of the workload, um, it was becoming uncontrollable. So I do two sources. I do public defender referrals from that office, and then I do private retainers. How closely did you follow the Kyle Rittenhouse trial? I read a lot about it. I talked to newspapers about it because whenever they had specific questions about legal issues, I was able to answer those. I declined any on-camera interviews because I was not watching it real time. I did later watch a lot of the testimony. I read a lot of the filings. I wrote some blog post or two about very specific legal issues, and I later did watch a lot of it, especially the videos. So I'd say I know uh, quite a bit about it. I mean, I certainly did not sit and watch it every day, but I'm aware of the legal issues, a lot of the jury instructions, uh, the judge's rulings, the video evidence. So I have a fair knowledge of it. How much experience do you have in front of Judge Bruce Schrader? I'd say quite a bit in my 20 years. I've got pushing 40 jury trials, um, and I would say at least a quarter of them. Now, that's, you know, those trials occur in any given time. There's four judges handling criminal trials, and then over the years, I've probably appeared before, you know, many more Kenosha judges because they come and go, they retire and so forth. So of all those judges, I would say at least 25% of my trials have been in Schrader's court. So 10, I would say probably, I wouldn't be surprised if it's 15 out of the 38 or so trials I've had. So I'd say that's the judge I've had the most experience in front of, of all of the Kenosha judges I've appeared in front of. What is his reputation as a trial judge and what has your experience been with him as a trial judge with respect to how he treats prosecutors, how he treats defense attorneys and defendants? Well, as far as the treatment, I'll just set that one aside for a second. But I think as far as his reputation, his reputation is you will get a fair trial in there. So if you have a case that's going to trial, especially if you have evidence that you want to put on yourself, some cases the defense doesn't put on evidence, that's the place where you want to be. And I think that's the general 
consensus on him because he will give you a fair trial relative to some other judges. Now, I, there's other judges that I think now have that reputation, but I'd say over the years, that's been his reputation. The other reputation is that he's a harsh sentencer if you are convicted, but I don't believe that's true. I think there are many types of cases where you will get a much more favorable sentence in that court than you will in other courts. And in some cases, you might get a harsher sentence, but I, I don't know. I've never studied the numbers on that, but I think those are the two general reputations if you're asking about reputation. I think the second reputation about being a harsher sentencer, that might not be accurate. Are there things in your experience that seem to set him off? Oh, well, yeah, that's true of every judge. And I think I've certainly criticized Judge Schrader in the past, among other defense lawyers, certainly in writing in law review articles and things like that. There are certain things he does not like at all. Any defense lawyer who's been in there any amount of time you know, knows what those are. Fourth Amendment issues, he, he does not rule favorably for the defense on those. He, he does not like plea bargaining really at all, and he does not like it past a certain point in the case, whereas I've had other judges accept the plea bargain in the middle of trial. So I would say, yeah, he certainly has things, as do other judges. Now, we're just talking about Judge Schrader here, but I would say the two things that come to mind is he does not like plea bargaining, particularly after a certain point in the life of the case. And he, I would say, Fourth Amendment issues, he's not particularly good for defendants on. And when you say Fourth Amendment issues, give me an example of the kind of Fourth Amendment issue that would arise that he would be tough on. Oh, sure. Like uh, filing a motion to suppress for illegal police conduct, illegal search of a defendant's person or automobile or his property. The law is incredibly mushy on that point to begin with. In other words, it gives judges tremendous leeway to rule how they want. And I've not been fond of many of his rulings in that area, and I've been critical of those. So I would say a motion to suppress evidence, that type of a thing. That's what I mean by Fourth Amendment. Do you see a disparity in how black defendants are treated and white defendants are treated? I don't see that. I've never thought that of any judge. I think uh, I've certainly had many a trial where I walk out of the courtroom with my African-American defendant after an acquittal. I think my, I don't have exact stats on this. I did look at them at one time and my win rate at trials is better with minority defendants. Now that may say more about, you know, juries than it does about judges. And it may say nothing at all. I mean, every case is different. I could be winning certain cases because the evidence just happens to be stronger in those cases. So it's difficult to pinpoint that. I never got that feel at all from Judge Schrader or any judge. I've never gotten that impression. I've never felt anything was based on race. I've often been critical of nearly all of the judges I've appeared in front of because of rulings, but I've never felt it was race-based in any way. Thinking back to the ones that I've disagreed with the most, often a Fourth Amendment issue, for example, or an evidentiary ruling, the ones that come to mind certainly include many white defendants. I've never gotten the impression of the Kenosha judiciary treating any defendant differently based on race. I certainly don't have any evidence for that, and I've never gotten that gut feel in any way. Have you had any experience arguing a case against Thomas Binger as a prosecutor? Uh, yeah, I've had several cases with him, certainly many motions. I'm trying to think if it's been, I know at least one trial, maybe a couple. Uh, but so yeah, yeah, I've had, I've had experience with Tom. What's your sense of him as a lawyer? 
Tom's, you know, a hardworking guy. He'll dismiss a very serious case before when he didn't think it was supported by the evidence. I've been angry at Tom in the heat of battle before. I think he's smart and he's a hard worker. And at times I've really respected the decisions he's made. At other times I've been angry with things that, you know, that he's done. But that's typical. You're This is an adversarial system. So you're going up against a prosecutor and it's in the heat of battle metaphorically. So you're going to be angry at them. And they felt, I'm sure they felt that way about me before. So there's nothing unusual there. The thing that stands out about Tom, I, I'd say he strikes me as a smart guy. That's the one thing um, that stands out about Tom. I like Tom and we get along. A couple of times I've seen him outside of the courtroom, we certainly get along. And in the courtroom, he's a hard worker and very capable prosecutor. And Mark Richards and Corey Shirofficy, what has your experience been with them? None. I don't know Corey at all. I have heard of, I did hear of his name before this trial. I think he had some tie to Kenosha many years ago. Mark, I know uh, we've not had any professional experiences together, like representing co-defense or anything like that, but we've spoken many times about legal issues, and he's always seemed like a smart attorney to me, but I don't have firsthand experience with him. There was a palpable tension throughout this trial between the prosecutor and Judge Schrader. What was your interpretation of that dynamic? What did you see when you heard or saw those interchanges between the two of them? Yeah, I mean, that's nothing unusual. I've seen the judge, and this maybe gets more to personality, but I've certainly seen him, you know, talk in those tones and in that manner to defense lawyers. The judge and I have gotten into yelling battles before. And in this case, I think the one I saw, it was due to actually the state, the prosecutor had acted or questioned a witness in violation of a pretrial ruling. And there was some dispute whether the prosecutor wasn't, you know, just said, well, I'm not sure you actually ruled. And and the judge said, well, he had indicated a strong preference to exclude the evidence and the state didn't seek reconsideration, that type of thing. That was one thing. And that's one thing the judge does that others don't. A lot of other judges will just rule on an issue pre-trial. This judge tends to like to leave things open to see how the evidence comes in at trial. So in that particular case, I think the issue, he was more angry with the prosecutor for just launching into it without seeking permission to do so. And then there was an issue about commenting on the defendant's silence. So I think what happened is I don't think the judge, and obviously Attorney Binger might have a different view, but I, I don't think the judge had any particular issue with Tom Binger. I've never seen it before, and I've had some cases with Tom in there. I think it was more what Tom did and how the judge interpreted that. And maybe the chief issue was commenting on the defendant's post-Miranda silence. So I don't think the judge was targeting him because it's Tom Binger. I think he was upset by a couple of things that happened. And that kind of reaction or behavior by the judge, that's his personality. I mean, I've seen that before. It's been directed at me before. I've seen it directed at other defense lawyers. So every judge has their own personality and style up there. And that's, you know, that's his. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. In the next part of our conversation, Michael and I explore some of Judge Schrader's decisions in the pretrial hearings. 
In Rittenhouse, Judge Schrader denied the prosecutor the ability to use a defendant's prior acts as evidence, including an assault on a woman and his musings about using a semi-automatic rifle to kill looters. Is that a typical decision for him on those prior acts? Yeah, I've had other acts excluded in there for black defendants, for white defendants, and I've had it admitted you know, for black defendants, against black defendants and against white defendants. Those issues of law are so, there's such wide discretion for the judge. Now, in this particular issue, as I remember it, it hinged on the similarity of the two issues. And in one case, Rittenhouse is sitting in a car watching people that he thinks are shoplifting. Maybe they were, I don't know. And he made a crack about, man, if I had this type of gun or something, I'd mow him down. And at the trial, of course, he's literally running away from people with a gun and then fired. And the judge, I think, said, well, those are so dissimilar that the only value that has is possibly character evidence that this guy wants to mow people down or something to that effect. So that one didn't surprise me at all. I'm not saying there aren't judges that would have let it in. Maybe some would have, but that's pretty dramatically different. And then that, that I think even more dissimilar would have been that other thing. So no, that with the fight with the, with the sister's friend or whatever that thing was, yeah, there's some girl involved. Yeah. That just bore no similarity whatsoever. So no, I wasn't surprised by that. If it would have been in another court, I would have said, ah, there's a chance this could come in. But these things are so subject to judicial decision-making, which could depend not only on the judge, but on the particular time of day <laughs> that the judge is presented with it. So there's, there's not a lot of rhyme or reason to these other acts type motions. And uh, often all they do is cast the defendant in a bad light. They often don't really shed any meaningful light on anything. But no, I, I wasn't terribly surprised by that. The jury selection went exceptionally fast in this trial. We've covered cases in Los Angeles and in Georgia where the process took at least two weeks, and yet Schrader's lasted just one long day. Is that common in Kenosha? Yeah, that's really common. The judges are very intolerant of any real questions in jury selection. I found that to be kind of universally the case in that county. I'm not terribly upset by that. That's my least favorite part of the criminal trial. And if it is going to be done that quickly and it's out of my control, that's something I can certainly live with. I'm not sure really the value of those longer jury selection processes, but it's pretty common in Kenosha. We don't spend a lot of time on it. If you want to draw a comparison, I don't practice in federal court, but I have heard that in federal court, it's similar in that the attorney's role is extremely limited. That's maybe something you could look into. Don't take my word for that, but it could be something to check out. But um, no, that's pretty common in Kenosha, fairly quick jury selection. I don't think I've ever had one that lasted more than a day. In more sensitive cases where people don't want to talk about their experiences, for example, in child sexual assault cases, often will go set up with that person in the conference room so they're talking outside the presence of the other prospective jurors. That can take a little more time. But I was a little surprised because of the political aspects of this case. I thought it might take a couple days, but I'm not terribly shocked it was done in a day. And were you surprised that the judge didn't allow a questionnaire to be sent out to prospective jurors, even though both parties requested it? Yeah, I thought at one time that that was ordered, and that was my mistake, because they had just requested it and they agreed on it. I've never heard of a jury instruction questionnaire being used, so I wasn't shocked that it wasn't in this case. If there's ever a case where you're going to do something like that, it would be like this. But that's another, when you talked about is Kenosha, do they do jury instruction quickly? That's another thing. I've never heard of one of those advanced instructions being used in Kenosha. In the Stephen Avery case, I think they did one there. Stephen Avery from the Making a Murderer fame, that was in a different county. And I think they used one there, but I, I've not heard of it much. I don't know if this this might even be a 
not just a Kenosha thing, more a state thing. But yeah, we just don't do a lot of that around here. Like I said, I'm not terribly upset by it. I'm not sure of the value of those lengthy jury selection processes. And the other thing, as a defense lawyer, when I'm picking a jury, I want to be careful of asking certain things because I might be eliciting information that'll allow the prosecutor to strike those jurors. We, we, you know, each side gets to strike people for any reason they want, except for things like race. So I might elicit information indicating a juror is good, and then that person is going to be stricken by the state. So it's a two-edged sword in a way. In the Rittenhouse trial, I was struck by how effective Corey Shirofsky seemed to be in his questioning and in eliciting biases against, for example, people that carry an AR-15-like weapon, whereas Thomas Binger didn't seem to elicit as much valuable information to him in terms of people that would be kind of more inclined to vote for acquittal. It's a tough area. It's not really a legal area, is it? It's more psychological area. Like I said, it's not my favorite part of the trial. It's my least favorite part of the trial. I did see some of the jury selection and yeah, he might be very good at it. You know, maybe that's an area where the the lawyer skill came into play and maybe Tom, like me, isn't very good at it. You know, I don't know. The strategies in selecting a jury, maybe Tom was doing exactly what he wanted according to his strategy. I, I don't really know, but um, it's an art form to be sure. I would compare it to one of my favorite parts of the trial, cross-examination and closing argument. Those are certainly more involved science and art, if you want to use those terms loosely, whereas jury selection is is certainly an art form. And it sounds to me um, that you know maybe Shroffsy was quite good at it. Judge Schrader was also extremely detailed in his pretrial instructions. At times, he almost seemed to anticipate the arguments that the prosecution was going to make in applying the laws to the facts. In your experience, is that typical of Schrader and the way he interacts with lawyers and with jurors? You mean the pretrial instruction to the jury? Yes, exactly. We've got pattern instructions. I've never known a judge to deviate from those. I've never known, well, I'm putting aside now the burden of proof instruction. Wisconsin, in my opinion, has a very defective burden of proof instruction. I've asked judges to deviate from that. And in very minor ways, some judges, including Schrader, have done that. But to your bigger question about these jury instructions, they're pattern instructions. I've never known a court to deviate from them. And quite frankly, as that's happening, I'm doing different things. So I never really pay attention. These are all kind of approved ahead of time by the parties. We look at them and and we make our suggestions and requested changes, if any. And if you could talk about a specific one, you know, I could maybe give you an answer, but I've not known. I, I think what the judge was doing was just reading pattern instructions that are posted on the internet. You know, you can find them here and, and they're I don't think there was much deviation there. If there's one in particular you were thinking about, I could look into that. The area that it seemed to me to sort of deviate was, and I haven't seen the pattern instructions, so it may be that I just misinterpreted what you know was a pattern interpretation, but it seemed to me that after reading the charges against Rittenhouse, he went into a sort of explanation of how the prosecution was going to apply the law to the facts and how the facts and the law were going to interact in this case. And just in my experience watching trials in other states, that was a very unusual narrative for him to engage in. Yeah, every state has different instructions. One example is the burden of proof jury instruction varies dramatically by state. I think Wisconsin's is horrible. It's, in my opinion, unconstitutional. I've challenged it. I've studied it and written about it. But one of the things you said did ring a bell in my head. I mean, the judge certainly does tell the jury that's their job. His job is to determine the law. Their job is to determine you know, the facts of the case and apply 
apply the law to it. I, that language does ring a bell with me. We have pattern opening instructions on things that define evidence, what evidence is, what it is not. We have instructions, of course, on the charge crimes and lesser included offenses. So I, I suspect he was just reading sample instructions. I've not known him to deviate in that area. So that just might be a difference among states that you're seeing. Without a transcript, yeah, I wouldn't be able to know for sure. I want to ask one other question that sort of goes beyond the scope of the week that we've been covering on the show, which is after Binger made his opening statement, he expressed surprise that Mark Richards was going to be using audiovisual material in his opening statement. And Binger has been a prosecutor for, you know, a number of years. Why would that have been a surprise to him? Yeah, first, you're right. There's a saying, and I think it's from a case that says what the ear may hear, the eye may see. And that refers to, you know, opening statements. So if you can tell the jury about something in opening, you should be able to show them. Now, when I've tried to do that, and I've never tried it in traitor's court, and I've been shut down cold, you know, judges won't allow a defense lawyer to do that. I've seen the prosecutor do it a couple of times. So I think there, in my experience, there's been a double standard imposed on the the defense there from my limited experience. But in defense of Binger, I would say it's a very unusual practice. And some judges might require a defendant to get approval ahead of time by motion. See, these practices are all so specific to the judge, not just the state or the county, but also the judge. A great example of that is these pretrial motions. Judge Schrader often refuses to rule, may give an indication of what he's thinking, and then we got to go into trial with this hanging over us. What's he going to do? Other judges will rule on them ahead of time. Now, the same differences apply in areas like that. But I'd say it's very uncommon to do that. I've I've seen the prosecutor do it a couple times. I tried it once. I was denied for no reason, just denied. You can't do that. So maybe that's where Tom was coming from. It's just such an unusual practice. He may not have seen it before because it's pretty rare. So in his defense, that's what I would say if I were defending his position. So it's really a court by court thing. Michael, is there anything else that you want to share? Any other general thoughts about the Rittenhouse trial or about the nature of justice in Kenosha? Well, I'm a defense lawyer, so I am always incredibly biased toward the defense. You know, I like to see defense win. I'm always proud of Kenosha jury when, you know, you hear so many things about racism. And I've had many cases with, a you know, a black defendant and a white accuser. And I believe I should win. And I have one. I'm always very proud of Kenosha juries. In this case, I, I felt that same way. I felt here is a guy, again, keeping in mind my defense bias. But, you know, here's a guy fleeing from people and not only a guy, but a young kid. And I think the jury's verdict was, you know, the right one from what I saw. I think most people, when they complain about this, obviously there's certain political things. And one of the biggest problems I see with the reporting is that, I mean, some people are still reporting that he shot black men and, you know, he shot white men, the first one of which was not even a protester. He was running around yelling the N-word and that was caught on video. So part of me then is frustrated when I see people who are upset with the verdict, people who would normally be defense oriented, uh, they're upset with the verdict for reasons that just aren't true. So that was a interesting case. I hope Kenosha never sees another one like it. That was way too much attention for my taste, especially with obviously all the damage, the property damage and the violence that took place here. But in addition to that, I hope we don't get a high profile case for a long time. If ever, I'd be very happy if that ever happened. Michael Cicchini, thank you so much for joining us today. All right. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. That concludes this weekly recap episode of Jury Duty, the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. If you go to our website, crimestory.com, you can find links to Michael Cicchini's website, as well as to the article that he referenced during our conversation. 
and please join us next week as we begin our examination of the opening statements in the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com You can find more information about this trial at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. This episode was co-produced by Chris Taracone and Aaron Karenik. Our consulting producer is Brittany Bookbinder. The episode was edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio, and Trial Audio is courtesy of Law and Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. <laughs>